Welcome to Season 6 of The Farcast, bringing you insight, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, October the 7th, as we really get started here for the fourth quarter. September was a cruel month. October can be a cruel month, mostly, mostly, because typically somewhere around the end of October, markets turn and you get this year-end rally, a Santa Claus rally. Who knows? Pent up frustration. We need good numbers. We're going to drive this thing higher because we're portfolio managers and need valuations up before we get to our year-end of year-end billing. Maybe, maybe, folks, but the Federal Reserve continues to hike rates. And as long as they continue to change the price of money, the price of stocks will continue to change. We've got a bit of a violent bear market rally, it feels like here, though every real genuine recovery starts this way. Could this be the beginning of a new leg up for stocks? Our friend Kenny Polcari from Case Capital Advisors is going to weigh in. I have an idea what he's going to say, but let's... Uh, Let's 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 hear from Kenny. Good morning, KP. Thanks for being on the Farcast again. Michael, it's always a pleasure. I, I look forward to every week when I do these with you because it's so much fun. How are you? I'm great. We do have a lot of fun. I was uh, talking to the Ames and Golf Group yesterday at Lansdowne. I'm going to uh, Scottsdale to give a speech for the Hightower Group next week. And then I'm coming down to see you in Palm Beach to talk to the Florida 100, 100 largest C, uh, companies, CEOs of the 100 largest companies in Florida. And when's that? Uh, uh, November 4th. I'll be at the Breakers uh, with November that group. November 4th. Yeah, okay. November 4th. Uh, Insana's coming with me. Insana talks before I do. Oh, no kidding. I am the closeout. I am the roundup. I am the guy who's supposed to bring it all together. So you're going to have the CEOs of Disney and AutoNation and, you know, all of these big companies, 60% of them are publicly traded companies. And I'm the one who's going to go in and tell them how to manage through a recession, how they manage their messaging and everything else. Now, if you can imagine those CEOs waiting to listen to Michael Farr, <laughs> I want to tell you that I want to tell you that I've got the best speaking agency in town, don't yeah. you think? I mean, if I, yes, yes, me, you do. If, if they sold me to that group, these guys are good. Leading authorities, by the way, excellent speaking speakers bureau, leading authorities out yeah. of Washington, D.C. They do yeah. an excellent, excellent job. Uh, wonderful people, leading authorities. So um, I'll, I'll be there and maybe we get to see you. KP, uh, yes. markets are moving back up. Do you believe it? And we've got a big unemployment number today. Let's start somewhere. What do you think about this well, rally in stocks? Well, I thought the rally on Monday and Tuesday got a little bit ahead of itself based on the narrative that, you know, suddenly everyone was going to, the, the Fed was suddenly going to pivot. I'm not really sure why that narrative got any steam, but it did. Um, I think maybe because, you know, Australia kind of pulled back on their rate hikes and the Bank of England did a pivot after they had you know, chaos in their currency and guilt market. But I didn't see any of that happening here. So I thought the Monday, Tuesday rally, while it feels good, um, had gotten well ahead of itself. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or at least Wednesday and Thursday, proven that to be true as the market's backed off a little bit. But futures right now this morning are, you know, right around the flat line, looking a little bit higher ahead of today's NFP report. So a couple of things could happen here, neither of which 
are going to affect, in my mind, what the Fed is going to do in three weeks, right? Whether it's a strong report, a weak report, it is not going to change the Fed's position over where rates are going on November. Fed speakers said that yesterday, KP, which leads me to believe this unemployment number won't be that bad. Right. They told you today, they told you earlier, they told you yesterday, we are not going to change just because the employment data softens. Right? That's right. And told you. They told they, you. That's right. They've been saying it, though, for a couple of weeks. I mean, Mester, Cleveland's Mester said, no matter what happens, the Fed is going to raise rates right into a recession. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. She is awesome, by the way. I have given two different speeches with her at the University of Delaware, and Loretta Mester is one of the nicest human beings you're going to want to meet. She has a fabulous sense of humor. Believe it or not, this is an economist, a Fed president with a sense of humor. With a sense of humor. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, she's fun to be with, uh, and she's very, very bright, needless to say. But they keep telling you. So, Kenny, why do the markets insist upon saying, oh, the Fed's going to pivot, the Fed's going to pivot. And every time they say it and they start to take stocks up, every member of the Fed comes up and says, look, dumbasses, we're not going to pivot. And the market, look, they, they get crushed again here in the next couple of days. I promise you, KP, you give it three friggin' weeks and they're going to be back saying, oh, I think they're going to pivot again. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's the I think it's the the traders in the system and the, and the street that's trying to bully the Fed into pivoting. And I think the Fed has, because look, let, let, let's be serious. Remember what happened in December 2018. The minute the Fed started to raise rates and the market sold off, everybody panicked and suddenly the Fed pivoted. Oh, my God, we can't let this happen. And the Fed pivoted. Now, the market is now down 30 percent on the Nasdaq. It's down 22 percent on the S&P. It's down 18 percent in the Dow. The Fed is not going to pivot. They recognize now that they can't. We're in a different position. Inflation is running at 40-year highs and doesn't have any sense of coming down. And now with oil up 20% in the last week and a half, the inflation number is going to continue to be an issue for them. So they're going to have to stick to their to their guns and continue to move aggressively. And so I think no matter what happens today, if we get a strong number, it's only going to embolden the Fed to say, look, see, we have to stay strong. And if we get a weak number, the Fed's going to say, okay, that's good, but we're not changing our narrative based on one single data point. Not happening. How much money do you make trading anymore in your own account? Stuff that would be considered short term that you do just trading? I I have to be honest with you. I stopped doing that short term day trading stuff because it was too it was too took me out of the it took me out of my game too much. I was much more concerned about that. So I really stopped doing I hardly do that. So the answer to that question for me is no, I'm much more long-term focused. I want to focus on the long game. I want to focus on significant changes and changes in stories, changes in fundamentals. That's going to help me build a much longer term. When you were doing that, okay, when you were doing that, uh, and and Kenny is a pro's pro, you're not going to find a more qualified professional to get in there and trade than the guy who was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as a damn near, you know, 30-year trader or more on the floor. So, Kenny, how much money, I mean, can you make real money uh, uh, constantly trading uh, in and out? If you, listen, if that is what you do, if you are a day trader by profession and you sit in front of your computer all day long, you have the opportunity to make money. But if you're someone that's trying to trade it, pick the top, pick the bottom, trade it, all you're doing is churning. Because one day you make money, the next day you lose twice that much. And the next day you make money, the, the, the third day you kind of go flat. You, I found it to be very, very unattractive for me. Now, but I was also doing three or four other things. I never did day trading as a profession. So 
uh, you know, I, I'll qualify that comment by saying that, right? I wasn't, I was doing other things. So no, I never really made any great money day trading. Not at all. I screwed up last week, KP. Uh, and I want to apologize now. I apologize on our part, podcast, but Jim Murio had me on his podcast. And one of the things that I went on a rant about was uh, day traders and how they can't make, I mean, traders, you know, day traders, they don't make money. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. generate commissions. They generate capital gains. When you net it all out, net at the end of the year after taxes, they don't make any money. Right. And one, I have one client, you know, who does puts and calls and this and that on his account. And I told him that. And he said, no, I probably don't make any money, but it keeps it interesting for me. And I love to gamble. I said, well, that's OK. Then you're this is entertainment, but it's not it's not making money. Correct. And that's fine. If that's what you want, like I call it a mad money account, right? It's going to be money that if you lose it all, it's not going to change one one ounce of the quality of your life, right? So if you want to trade, it keeps you engaged. It makes you happy. You feel like you're gambling. I get that. I get that. And and that's fine. But for me, I had, you know, I, 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 I just wasn't successful. To your point, you create all kinds of commissions. You create all kinds of noise. But at the end of the day, you're not going home you know, significantly wealthier. You're just not. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, I, I just feel bad. I, I want to apologize to Jim Murillo and Bob if Dr. Valley that, um, you know, I mean, I go on their podcast. These guys are professional traders, right? right? I mean, these guys are on the CME for God's sakes. And I go on their podcast and say, you can't make money doing what they do. They are professionals, folks. Right. But, but he makes money, but the Jimmy will make money because like you said, they are professionals. That's what they do. They're not doing it on the side. They're not, they're not a dentist who's trying to be a day trader. They're not a, a doctor who's trying to be a day trader, right? They are doing it full on. So yes, so, they'll do all right. And and so let's let's just go back to Fred and Ethel. Ladies and gentlemen out there, if you're thinking day trading is work, if you think day trading, let me tell you, if 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 you we put you up against Kenny Polcari, would you would you like to go up? Uh, I'll I'll give you I'll give you both dollars. <laughs> you think there's a chance you're gonna beat Kenny Polkari, day trading. I don't care whether you want to do it for 90 days or 365 days. The odds that you're going to beat Kenny Polkari with his intuition and experience are really close to zero. Okay. And Kenny just told you that he can't make any significant money doing this and it's too much of a distraction and he's better off as a long-term investor. So why are we still arguing about it? That's, that's my point, folks. I just want to, he's one of the best you're ever going to talk to. I can tell you as a long-term investor, I mean, can I make a trade every so often? Do I see an opportunity because of what I see in volumes and what I'm hearing that, that I think is going to work? Yes. Will I sometimes do that? Yes. Is that stupid? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And sometimes the really bad thing that happens is every so often when I'll do one of those short trades, I'll make money on it. And then I walk yeah. away like everybody else and says, damn, I'm good at this. I should yeah. do this more often. That's right. Until the next day, you do the same thing and then you get your clocks cleaned, right? I've got two. Well, I've got one one right now, big losing trade in my in my portfolio. There is a company. It was a penny stock. It was five dollars a share. Uh, it's a big recommendation. Medical stock from uh, Goldman Sachs. It made their number one list. The stock was moving up. It had momentum. Yeah, Everything yeah. about this looked hot. Their products are good. I looked into it. I looked at the financials. They, they, it's not making a ton of money, but it is making some money. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I like this. If Goldman's going to get behind a penny stock, I can ride that. Right. <laughs> when I saw the momentum and everything. Well, problem was it was last November 
And last November, everything was hot. And I put uh, a decent chunk of money in this that is now trading at about 25 cents on the dollar. Uh, I'm not selling it. I'm not, I put it away. I'm going to forget about it. And at some point, I'll either take the big tax loss or the damn thing will work out. But in terms of the trade that I wanted, no, didn't work. But right. I can live with that. Okay, folks, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything that's going to affect what I have for dinner tonight. So anyway, Kenny, uh, let's take a look back at markets. We've got this number coming today. Talk to us about the end of the year. We have earnings. You know, that's earnings expectations for 22 and 23 and 24 are still 8% growth for the S&P. Do you believe that? It, it, well, I think that's going to change. I have to believe it's going to change. 24, that's too far out for me, but 23, I have to believe that's going to come down because if we hit a recession, which I think we're already in, but let's just assume we haven't hit it yet, uh, then I think it's going to force. Look, you're starting to see it already. Now you're starting to see, since we spoke last week, there's been another half dozen companies that come out. AMD warned last night of a, of a disaster, disaster in in, in uh, demand, right? Yes. In third quarter revenues, a disaster. That's down five percent this morning. Intel, Nvidia down another three and four percent down this morning. Those stocks are down fifty five percent plus year to date for Those a whole three, year. For, for a, a whole year on what? CNBC, I've been saying no, right. we're not going to buy them. No, I don't right. like the chip stocks. No, this is a commodity trade. No, this is a two-time thing in a slowing economy. This doesn't work. It's beyond a supply chain issue. The right. demand. And folks, I was arguing and I try to argue politely and they all dismiss me and they go, oh, yes, there's that old money, boring old car. He never gets this stuff. <laughs> Kenny, give us a word for- That's Fred. why people pay go. you, Michael, because you are a superstar. Uh, and no, it's because I'm boring. But let me tell you something, folks. So boring is good. Boring is good when it comes to your money. You well, don't want your money to be thrilling for God's well, sake. Well, listen, boring is good in a in an environment that we're in today, right? Once this all settles down, it's okay. Take a little bit more and overweight some of the sexy high growth things. But in this environment, absolutely not. And look what happened. Listen, what could be more boring than utilities? Did you see what happened to them yesterday? Down 3%. Why? Yeah. Because interest rates are now four and a quarter percent. And so anyone that's income oriented that wants no risk of equities. They go right into two-year treasuries at four and a quarter percent. They get their income and they sleep at night. They're not worried about the equity exposure, right? So that makes sense. If you want, if you want thrilling with your money, listen but, to Far and Polcari. Go to Vegas, log right. into the Kings, <laughs> go to the track. Don't that, go that, to the New York Stock Exchange. That, <laughs> but anyway, what I would say is, I think this next couple of weeks, and you and I agree on this, that as we go through earnings season, we got to kind of hear out what the guidance is. Not so much even what the earnings, what the earnings are they're going to report. It's really always what they're going to say about the future. And I think if 23, if we enter this recession the way that Messer thinks going to enter it, and other Fed heads think we're going to enter it, then it's going to be another kind of difficult year. And so big, boring and big divvy payers, boring names are kind of where you want to be. So I would overweight, as we've been discussing, energy, healthcare, uh, consumer staples, kind of just names that are not sexy, but they're going to give you stability. Um, and then I, I suspect after the Fed meeting in November, uh, and the elections uh, the week eight, after on the 8th, there'll be more clarity on kind of what the what the legislative branch is going to look like. And then uh, you'll have a better sense of kind of where to position yourself. And then I think we're going to get that year end Christmas rally, but it's not going to take us back to 4,800. We'll be lucky, I think, if we get back to 4,000 uh, this year by year end. Do we still make a new low somewhere between now and the spring? Well, wait, now in the spring? 
Yes. Now in the spring, I think, yes, we can make a new low. I do think we, I think 3585 at the end of September. Remember, that was the new low now for 22 on the S&P. It needs to hold there at least through earnings season. If it doesn't hold it through earnings season, if it start, if earnings season starts to get ugly um, and, it's, and there's more pressure, I think then we go to 3400. I think that will be the low. All right. Kenny Polcari, President and CEO, Case Capital Advisors, our great friend on the forecast. Kenny, we'll talk to you in the next week or so. Thank you, pal. Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure. We're going to come right back, ladies and gentlemen, with Dan Mahaffey. And then in segment three, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank, a great economist, PhD economist, professor emeritus, uh, a very smart guy. When we come back on the forecast, please stay with us. Thank you for joining us this week on the Farcast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast on October the 7th. Here we go, folks. We got one month, one month to a national election. We've got gubernatorial races, we've got Senate races, congressional races, local races. And the stakes are high. The House of Representatives will very, very likely shift to a Republican majority. And therefore, the president, a Democrat in the executive branch, will no longer be able to have votes, majority of votes in both houses, though it hadn't helped him a hell of a lot so far. But he's really going to be thwarted his agenda items going forward if that changes. Moreover, Given the change of the temperature in this particular election, I think we could see perhaps, perhaps the Senate shift to Republican too. We will wait and see, but we've got to ask Dan Mahaffey about this. Of course, Dan is uh, the director of policy for the Center of the Study of the Presidency in Congress, our senior political analyst on the forecast here still in season six. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Great as always to be talking to you. Six seasons. Wow. I know. It's absolutely incredible. And you've done an incredible job for all Mm -hmm. of our listeners, keeping us informed and educating us and giving us more to think about. You know, it's your thoughtful allows us uh, to become informed and be thoughtful ourselves, which is which is a wonderful thing. Dan, as a Washingtonian, when I look up on October 6th, History tells me that the election's over with, that nothing happens after the middle of September. People make up their minds and you don't change votes. Mm -hmm. But that's not true this year. Things are changing. And on the top of the list is the price of gasoline. What do you see? Yeah, the the first October surprise, as we always call these, the October surprises, comes from OPEC, this announcement of their cutback. You know, how soon will that affect the price of gasoline? We're already seeing it go up in some West Coast states, uh, some areas where there's refining issues. Um, But look, this is energy prices always a big factor for voters thinking as they go to the polls. And does this energy, uh, does these OPEC cuts hit Americans in the wallet as they go to the polls? A big question mark. And I think why we're also seeing a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Washington about the Saudis and our relationship with OPEC. Uh, Biden talking about you know, what options he has. Uh, the number two Democrat, Dick Durbin, in the Senate saying that it's time to reevaluate our alliance with Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders, chief of staff, suggesting we could ground the Saudi Air Force simply by pulling out our contractors and parts. So really so a lot. Really, so they've really pissed us off. I mean, it's they they've really pissed off the Democrats and what they have done. Uh, if you're a Democrat, uh, you might be angry here and you should maybe be very angry because this has the potential to inflict pain at the pump and therefore have people question for whom they're voting and uh, blame the mm -hmm. incumbents, which are a majority of Democrats. So this could change the outcome away from the Democrats. Do the Saudis really want more Republicans in office or are they trying to get Donald Trump back? That's a that's a very you know that's the hundred dollar a barrel question michael uh <laughs> the uh the, you know the uh you know do they want that uh you know the saudis will say look we are just protecting the interests of energy producers you even in the u.s with your shale industry should be thankful that while your fed is overshooting the mark and throwing the world into recession that we're there to make sure that we don't have these crises where oil flips negative again. You know, that was so scarring for some of these producers that their mindset is all about price stability going forward. Uh, that said, this is where it gets into the political and the geopolitical. That's why you have that rhetoric about the military support, and not just for the Saudis, also for the UAE and the other OPEC allies, or, uh, you know, there's talk too of relaxing uh, the restrictions on Chevron's operations in Venezuela now to make up for this. So there's all these pieces that are now in play and even legislation that could go so far as to try and nationalize uh, the assets of OPEC companies like Aramco, those national oil providers. OK, but oh, I got all this, Dan. This is a tantrum, right? right. This is a tantrum are... response full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. They're not going to do a damn thing about this, are they? I mean, we just went over for the big fist bump meeting, which is making the president. Well, I think the fact that this happened after the fist bump meeting makes it likely that there will some of this will become actual fury and not just really. Noise. Really? OK, yes. I think this is seen as a full fury? They can't get anything done before the election. Can they get anything done after the election? Don't we move into lame duck status? How much can they change? Well, the president can still change quite a lot on foreign policy yes. uh, going ahead. And look, yes. the, the Saudis don't have all that much of a natural constituency here in Washington. Uh, the way they had once cultivated ties and, and the controversies that their current crown print Crown Prince has brought about have not helped their reputation in this town. So other than the Trump family, it didn't seem like there was a natural constituency for them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Dan, was this really is this also the Saudi government siding with Russia and China and Iran? And why would they do that? I think, look, if they're siding with Russia, it's because, again, they're siding with energy producers. I think this is wholly in in saudi self-interest i don't think they think of it as aligning with russia i think it's the understanding that their economic future is still underpinned on oil being expensive you know my friend daryl owen used to run the house energy committee he was a uh, uh, chief of staff uh, for uh, a u.s senator's office as as well from uh, from louisiana uh, and Daryl was explaining to me that Russian supply is going to be crimped here, that their ability to produce because they can't import, they can't get the parts to maintain their pumping and drilling equipment anymore. 
uh, they're already starting to have to cannibalize existing mm -hmm. equipment to keep certain equipment going. And they've lost the expert support of Chevron and other companies that were sort of had joint ventures in there mm -hmm. with the Russians. You know, Dan, I'm, I'm sorry, as an aside, I, I was I'm tempted to say, keep using the word Soviets. Mm -hmm. uh, I keep that's the word that comes to mind because this is the way they feel now, you know. I went over, I was in the Soviet Union and I helped open the stock markets for Russia. And Russia was an emerging, fabulous place full of hopes and dreams and and wonderful people. God, just wonderful people, the Russian people I got to mm -hmm. know personally. This feels Soviet again. This feels like the people don't matter anymore. The government matters right. again. Uh, but if there is a supply, and this is my friend, Daryl Owen, uh, who is a who is a brilliant oil uh, and energy lobbyist in Washington? Uh, we're going to have him on the forecast next week. Next week, Daryl Owen's coming on because this is so important. What do you think about that reduction in supply coming up along with these price hikes? Mm -hmm. And what does that do to the political pressure in Washington? Uh, this has political pressure all across Washington. You'll see we're going to release more from the strategic reserve as well. I think that will be part of it. Um, I also think the dynamic in Russia that uh, needs to be also acknowledged is that uh, with mobilization, it seems as if they're not being strategic and even pulling workers from their oil industry to mobilize for the front. So all of this suggests that the, the Russian supply is going to go down. Uh, the fact that there was no deal on the horizon with Iran anytime soon doesn't suggest new supply coming on board. Uh, so where do you look? And that's why I think you see this uh, softening on Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, and will that lead to anything material? Look, I think the question it's Venezuela is the same situation now that the Russian industry is headed to. Yes. How much repairing and rebuilding is needed for getting Venezuela back online? Okay. Uh, I, 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 I want to move along uh, sure. here, Dan. Um, Vladimir Putin has been threatening the use of nukes, which they are now sort of, our media is saying he's threatening tactical nukes. Mm -hmm. And the president yesterday at the UN, I believe, said that they believed the president's, uh, Putin's threat uh, to use tactical nukes and there we're saying that the consequences will be dire if if indeed uh russia does that but the president saying that again mm -hmm. tells me uh maybe as an old washington cynic and an old wall street cynic a little bit he's sending us a message mm -hmm. a tactical nuke don't lose your minds when he fires the tactical nuke because we think he's going to do it mm -hmm. and it's and there's a difference between a tactical nuke and a massive, I don't know what the other kind of nuke is. What, what's right. It, well, you refer to it as a strategic nuke versus a tactical nuke. A tactical nuke is the kind that would, you know, designed to destroy uh, something, yes. you know, on a battlefield compared to this kind that would destroy a city. A city, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so these are the ones where, look, I think in one hand, look, do you want to avoid creating an artificial difference in nuclear use? Uh, maybe because look, the challenge is what do we do if you retaliate? One, we've you know, we, you can make it as clear in advance that Russia would forever be a pariah, 
uh, at least this leadership, if they did go ahead with a use of any kind of nuclear weapon. My colleague Joshua also points out, look, that they they talk so much about nuclear weapons, we still forget that they, they have a biological weapons program, they have chemical weapons, uh, smallpox, other things they can use to in, show that they want to escalate sub-nuclear. Um, there's other things, you know, that can be done in terms of before using a nuke, perhaps deploying them closer to the battlefield or readying them at air bases. Is is Putin going to use the nuke or no? Give me your best. I vote. would say no. You'll still say no. Okay, that does change things. If he does, if you happen to be wrong about that, our response will be dramatic. Or we our response will be dramatic, but I, I not just saber rattling. We're not just saber rattling because that'll be something where you have to respond credibly. I am just now. Uh, out of time, Dan, I apologize, uh, because I always learn so much. Tell me what else you're looking at finally this week that we can get to next week, mm-hmm. please. Well, I'm looking, we need to talk at like how these voting groups are starting to look at this election, where the ideas of uh, MAGA versus the Biden left, how are these coming together? What are some of these focus groups saying? Uh, as we said, it's not all set with these October surprises, and there's going to be some key swing groups to look at. Got it. And we're going to talk about that next week. And then the following week, Dan and I are going to be in Scottsdale, Arizona, talking to a large group of professionals in the business for Hightower Advisors, a lot of their senior advisors at Hightower, my colleagues. And we're going to be discussing all of these political points from oil to Russia to uh, Wall Street, Washington, all of it. Uh, we've got about 30 minutes in Scottsdale, Dan, and we're going to cover it all. It's going to be fabulous. The Reader's Digest version of what you need to know coming into November 2nd for a bunch of people with money. Uh, That's it. Shouldn't be hard. What do you think? Not at all. No. Walk in the park. Yeah, I hope they throw at least rotten fruit. The thing about rotten fruit is, you know, the stench stays with you, but it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt half as much as a ripe apple. You know I mean? Right, those <laughs> apples, those damn things hurt. Uh, I don't want to tell you how I know that. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the forecast now in season six. Coming up, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, when we come back on the forecast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of the Farcast. Please share us with friends and colleagues. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Joining us now, what a treat, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the 
Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia, was a voting member for many, many years of the Federal Open Market Committee and Insiders. Insider, a PhD economist, a professor of economics. Uh, this is a very smart guy who gets it, folks. And by the way, we've been hearing a lot from Dr. Jeremy Siegel, for whom I have a great deal of respect. He has a very different opinion, I think, than I do, and I believe than Dr. Lacker. But Dr. Siegel, for all of his press, was not a voting member of the Federal Reserve. I'm inclined to listen to Dr. Lacker a little bit more. Uh, Jeff, sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, uh, but uh, welcome back to the Farcast. We're in season six. This is the se second episode now in season six. And you can believe that? Congratulations. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Michael. Uh, good to see you, Hale and Hardy. Thank you. We're great, great, very glad to have you. Uh, uh, Jeff, recession, not recession. What are you seeing? What's the Fed going to do? We saw the unemployment data this morning or employment data. Jobs gains were not bad at all. Three and a half percent, which means that the participation rate went down. But that's one sort of datum. Uh, what does that mean for the big picture, please? I, I've been saying since March that the Fed uh, had uh, given up the opportunity uh, for a soft landing, most likely, that they were not going to be able to bring inflation down to target uh, without a recession. Um, I, did they seen... ever have the chance, Jeff? Was there they ever did, really yeah. an opportunity? There was when? They had... What would they have so done? This would have been the summer of 2021. If they had yes. responded in, in the June, July, yes. August timeframe with rate increases, yes. if they had stopped uh, buying bonds and they could have gone cold turkey. There really isn't any market reason why. Um, if they had stopped QE and started raising rates in the summer of 2021, um, they could have nipped this in the bud and we, we could have been in a much different space now. But I, I, I think you're seeing signs of slowing. You're seeing signs of rate increases um, having a bite on uh, demand. But I think the labor market data is the one that trumps everything. And until you slow the demand for labor, the growth in the demand for labor, they're not going to get much traction because wage gains are at, are, are at about 6 or 7% at an annual rate over the last several months. And until they get the rate of wage increases down, they're not going to bring inflation down in a sustained way. So it's it they can weaken the housing market and other things around the fringe all they want. But until they, but until rate increases bite strongly enough uh, to reduce the growth in the demand for labor, they're not going to make he serious headway on inflation. And I, that's a ways off. But I and they could bite it just enough to get wage to get wage growth down without causing a recession. But it's very unlikely. Ken Rogoff said uh, yesterday morning that uh, this is the Harvard economist. Ken Rogoff uh, said, yeah, I know that Jeff knows that, ladies and gentlemen, by the way, he knows exactly who Ken Rogoff is pretty well uh, and for the rest for the rest of us. Uh, Ken suggested two things. He suggested one that the Fed probably rather than going for two and a two and a half or two percent inflation all in one swell foop, that perhaps they should pause when they get to that three and a half percent or so level and then really slow down in their final adjustments in a more Greenspan-esque way. That was what he said was number one. And number two, he thought he posited that this era of two percent 10-year yields was over. 
uh, a historical prove something to be a, a historical aberration and that we're probably going to be in a higher 10-year rate environment as we have been throughout most of our history. What do you think about both of those things? So I, I, I think the last one is, is very plausible. I think that the, it, it depends on, of course, the inflation rate and real interest rates. And real interest rates have, have been in a, a sort of a secular pocket. And I think there's good reason to believe they're going to go up just because of the demands of uh, fiscal uh, deficits um, that we've been running and the huge increase in government debt we've seen over the last few years, I think that's going to put upward pressure on rates, uh, on real interest rates. And if we get inflation down to two, yeah, uh, I think bond rates at two seems unrealistic and something more like three or four seems more likely. On the first one, I'm I'm a little wary just because um, we've we've tried once to get inflation down to a certain part you know, part way and then let off the break. Right. And that, that's what happened in 1976. And inflation stopped at like five or 6%, stopped falling. We, the Fed let off the brakes, but then inflation tailed up after that. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a little, um, it, it's a little risky, but if the signs are pointing towards continued fall after that, I mean, maybe it's, a plausible thing to do. Um, but I think that what, what they have to concentrate now on is getting inflation to start coming down. And I think to do that, they're going to have to get interest rates up pretty high. Well, okay. So two types of inflation that I, are most concerning are wage inflation, which we've mentioned. And then we've got shelter costs. On the wage inflation, is five and a half percent, and I'm spitballing, and I'm going to ask you as an economist to also do something very uncomfortable. Economists hate to do this, by the way, folks. Uh, um, spitball with me, if you would. Five and a half percent, is that an area, a reasonable level of equilibrium where you don't see aggressive wage inflation? Is that a high enough unemployment rate? That's a good question. I'm, um, you know, the unemployment rate tends to rise rapidly when it starts rising. And today's employment report indicates it's not rising at all. I mean, right. it, yeah. it dropped back down to 3.5%. But when it when it rises more than half a percentage point, it tends to rise by two percentage points or more. That seems to be the empirical rule historically. So once, once the labor market starts to crack, it spreads and you get a, a surge in unemployment. If you look at the historical plot of the unemployment rate, these periods of sharp increases in unemployment and then very gradual declines. And the, the narrative basically is that the contraction leads to a lot of separations, a lot of people out of work, and it takes time for the economy to figure out where those people are needed best and we, to get them there. We saw in today's number two that the uh, labor force participation rate also fell. Does that? How do you, how do you think about the workforce labor force participation rate with regard to an unemployment rate? This is a bit of a wonky question, folks. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. The number of workers available to work is basically declining as a percentage of the workforce. So, how how do you interpret that as an economist? What does it mean to you? Well, so we've been on a. Um, a broader downward trend in the fraction of the 
working age population that's either working or available for work is unemployed. That's the labor force participation rate. That's been on a downward trend just because the larger fraction of us are in these age groups like you and me, uh, fewer of whom are in the labor force. Um, But cyclically, there was a big shift with the pandemic. Huge number of people left the labor force, left work and the labor force. Over the last couple of years, economists and policymakers have grappled with this question of whether there's an overhang of people who are out of the labor force and therefore not counted as unemployed who could be drawn easily into the workforce. And I think that's what led the Fed last early last year to favor stronger policy stimulus than the economy really needed. I think they overestimated the extent to which people out of the labor force who left the labor force now will be willing to draw in. And the data indicates that the big gap now between the pre-pandemic trend and where we are now in labor force has to do with people in their 50s who retired earlier than they otherwise would. So there was a big, there was sort of a spike in early retirements with the pandemic. People said, well, I'm out of here and um, didn't cut, haven't come back. They've just said, well, I'm just going to stay at out of the labor for I'm just going to stay retired. Um, I think a lot of those people too, Jeff, took looked at their uh, statements as the market was rebounding and making new highs and said, well, I can afford to retire. You let the stock market go down 20 some odd percent. If it goes down as it does in a typical recession, a little bit more than 30%. And that's on average, folks. I think there are a certain number of those folks our age, Jeff, who are going to go, oh, damn, maybe I... uh, Maybe I need to work for another five or 10 years. You, you got to be careful when you look at your money in the stock market and think that it's, <laughs> it's a moving target all the time. What, yeah. about, uh, what about, Jeff, the uh, shelter costs that are moving up? How long does that last? We read the report from the Dallas Fed that said it lags home prices by a couple of years. Those yeah. rents are going up. So these that kind of inflation does I don't and you never hear of landlords too often lowering rents, do you? <laughs> yeah, I think we've got like a built-in pipeline of upward pressure and shelter costs for a couple of years. I think a couple of years is a good uh, handle on it because they the the way inflation's measured, they take into account that a lot of people have leases that they took twelve months ago that haven't gone up yet. But even though so if market leases like new leases accelerate it takes a while for everyone else to sort of have their lease re, re- readjusted yeah and so for that to get into the price index there's sort of this pipeline of pressure there and i think that's going to go on for a couple of years how much so going back to the fomc uh you're let's remember the days when you're getting ready for a meeting or think that you're getting ready for this next fomc meeting for the voting and non-voting members what sort of information is disseminated ahead of time? How much is the agenda really predictable? And how much actually gets decided or changed? Is, is most everything argued out before the meeting? How much happens at the meeting? And what would you try to do to influence policy at this next meeting? What would your message be uh, as a voting or non-voting member with a voice? Die is usually cast about two weeks before the meeting. First of all, Um, All the committee members get gobs and gobs of information, a huge, uh, you know, huge reports out of the Board of Governors where they've got, you know, several hundred economists 
your own staff is digging in, you're compiling, uh, and they're compiling, you know, all sorts of uh, other re reports. Uh, you're getting anecdotal information from your boards of directors, your business contacts around your district, huge amounts of information. But two weeks ahead of time, the chairman meets with, it used to be called the Troika. It used to be the vice chair of the board of governors and the vice chair of the FOMC, which is always the New York Fed president. They meet two weeks ahead of time and by phone and they, they, they kind of figure out uh, and the chairman kind of determines what he wants the agenda to be. Right. And there's, a, there's always three policy options, A, B, and C. And the committee almost always chooses B. Okay. That's almost always the one they, they approve. Now, there could be some language changes, and what they distribute that a week ahead of the meeting, the three options. And then by the end of the week, they've gotten reactions from everyone on the FOMC. So they, they've, they've floated this trial balloon of, of, of uh, alternative B, they call it. And uh, sometimes it gets revised uh, when there's new data coming in. So, for example, a couple of meetings ago, uh, there was this meeting where the there was inflation data the Friday before the meeting, and the alternative on the table undoubtedly was 50 basis points. That's kind of the whisper guidance and and uh, that had been given to markets. That's where market expectations had aligned. And then Monday afternoon, there's this story from uh, on the Wall Street Journal um, reporter saying that. Yeah, actually, they're thinking about 75, too. And that was that seems clearly like a case in which over the weekend they decided, now the, the committee really wants 75, we're going to go with that. Or the chairman really wants 75, we're going to go with that. And they had to leak it in order to not whipsaw markets on the day of the meeting. Now, they used to be much more willing to whipsaw markets. You know, I mean, going 75 versus 50, it's not a gigantic deal, but or it shouldn't be, but in this day and age of rock solid pre-meeting guidance, um, that, that's something that the chairman didn't want to do. So he, he put out the leak. I'm, this is my inference. I, don't, I have no direct knowledge of this. We haven't proven this yet, but so, that's well, I mean, Okay. So like the guy now is, and we're, we're out of time. I can't believe it. We're going to still go a couple minutes long because we don't get a shot at Dr. Lacker too often. And we're going to go folks. I hope you, you can cut us off if you want, but I think this is worth listening to. The guy at the wall street journal is now, is now Nick Timoros. Uh, how does the, how does the fed seem to choose that this is going to be their guy? I mean, it, how, how do we all agree to leak to, to, to Nick Timoros, and he's our guy as a faithful guy. So it's a, it's a long-term relationship they have. Um, it, it was Greg Ip, then it was David Wessel, then it was John Hilsenrath, then it was, um, you know, Nick, um, when he took the seat, John's seat. Um, so it's a relationship, and there's, there's a kind of a quid pro quo. They give him better access to uh, the chairman, allows him to provide you kind of background color on uh, key events, you know, and then um, in return, you know, he, he's very uh, diplomatic, let's say, in how he characterizes the Fed and the internal debates. He downplays internal discussion, internal differences of opinion, uh, promotes the views of the board um, over, you know, others on the committee. And so in turn, he, he kind of casts the, the, the Fed in a, you know, a, a reasonably positive light. Um, so that's that's just sort of been the way it's worked for 
a couple of decades. Okay. Uh, so if you're at this next meeting uh, or you're participating in these calls, what do you expect and what would you advise? It seems like they're being uh, <coughs> lacquer-ish, lacquer hawkish. Well, they they need to ma- maintain hawkishness, and I think I think they they understand that. I, I I think Jay and everyone else there I think understands that um, Chairman Powell, I should say, um, understands that their legacy is so t- tied solely to whether they can get inflation down or not, and I think they understand that they have to um, get the real interest rate up with expectations of short-term, near-term inflation running around 5 to 7%, I think that means they're going to have to get in interest rates well above 5 to do yeah. it. Yeah. So I think what they're doing is gradually conditioning people to how hawkish they're go- they think they're going to have to be. Now, if, if they get lucky, and between now and the end of year, inflation expectations come down um, as their, their sort of rosy forecasts suggests, then maybe they're off the hook and they can stop at four and a half. But I think they're gradually uh, revealing, gradually unveiling the extent of how hawkish they're they're going to have to be. Are they going to care when markets really tank? I think they're going to stay the course. That means no. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, is there a point at which to which markets could go that would get the Fed's attention? We're down 25 percent now. If we went down 35 percent or 45 percent, would that get the Fed's attention? (coughs) Typically, the Fed kind of looks through big equity market declines, Um, you know, huge losses somewhere. plumbing problems, you know, dealers going bankrupt and, you know, trading kind of getting stalled out. That used to trigger a Fed response. Um, You know, credit markets are much more of a concern for the Fed. So losses um, in fixed income and, um, uh, you know, difficulties borrowing by, you know, municipals or corporates or small businesses and the like that would that would get the Fed's attention and may, maybe arrest uh, the the rate increases, but I think they're I think they're focused right now on um, getting rates up. Now the big wild card for the Fed is the politics of this, and when the unemployment rate does start to tick up, when it goes above four, you're gonna you're I I think you're going to see some howls yes. uh, from the left and howls from the right, and whether the Fed stays, you know, sticks with it in those circumstances when it's getting hammered for rise for rising the unemployment rate and weakening of the labor market, that's that's when their metal is re- truly going to be tested. When things get bad, Washington's going to blame somebody. And right now, the biggest target on the back is Jay Powell. Uh, yep. Yep. And he knows it. He knows, after him. he knows it. I think, you know, I've known Jay for a long time. I know you know him. Uh, he seems uh, Jay can get stubborn and stoic. Um, that's not to say that he is distant and unreachable because he never is distant or unreachable. But right. uh, when he puts his mind to something, he'll stick with it. Is my experience with him. You agree with that? Uh, yeah, he, he's um, his communication, the, the stance he's taken of 
of uh, sort of a later day Volker, um, I think is the right one. I think it'll serve him well. Um, and those are very good qualities to have, the qualities you described for a chairman in this circumstance. Dr. Jeffrey Lacker is former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia, was a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee for many, many years, a professor, a PhD in economics, and my great friend, which I tell you makes me very proud and honored to say. Jeff, thank you so much for being on very the podcast. Very kind of you. Thank we you very are... much for having me on. It's very kind of you. Uh, hope hang with us just one more minute. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast. We'll be back again next week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great weekend. That's it for another edition of the forecast. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you and we'll share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week as we welcome scheduled guests, CNBC contributor Jim Labenthal, our senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey, and oil industry insider, Daryl Owen. A big thank you to this week's guest, Kenny Polkari, Dan, and special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker. The forecast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed provided in the podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employers, or our agents of Hightower Advisors or Farmiller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farmiller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be considered as a recommendation by ourselves. And please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. And I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. 
This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC or any of its affiliates. Farr Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.